Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. And lots of interesting things going on in technology. I'll tell you, there was a huge security app, a security uh, flaw in WhatsApp. And uh, we'll talk about that. And while you better update your WhatsApp, pronto. Facial recognition is going to be hitting the public schools of New York. The first school is going to launch this thing, and it's a double-edged sword. Some people think it's a huge privacy violation, but on the other hand, it may catch people that shouldn't be in the school before they do something bad. Mm -hmm. The invention of the week is this ProTech DNA gel that you sort of just rub on your belongings, and then you you can identify them. DNA gel? Yeah, they call it a DNA gel. It's actually, it's kind of a... Is it your DNA? No, it's not your DNA. It's it's actually a very clever idea, and it allows police to, you know... Uh, you know, blink up a stolen piece of property with the with the owner. Interesting. It's really a nice idea. And this is really, a, all of you metric fans, this is the week that we get the new kilogram standard. And, and the original weight, kilogram weight, that was stored in a vault in France is now going to be retired. Will I be, will I weigh more or less now? Uh, you'll weigh the same, but it'll just, oh, and, and that weight in France was called Le Grand K. <laughs> <laughs> this week we're going to feature Kevin Systrom. He is the co-founder of Instagram. He just, he, he, he left Instagram and uh, Facebook last year, so he's, he's on to a new phase in his life. But it's interesting how he ended up starting Instagram and and his trial and tribulations as he was going through that startup phase. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Jacob in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, I've heard of this phone scam where callers leave a message and then hang up. When you return the call, you reach an expensive toll line. Is there any way to protect protect yourself from this attack? Jacob in Ashburn. Well... Well, it's, it's called the ring scam, and the ring scam is back. You know, that's when you get on your phone, you call a number you don't know, and it, and the or number calls that you don't know. It stops after one ring, and the scammer hopes you're going to call right back because actually you're calling an international toll number, and you won't know it until you get the charge on your phone bill at the end of the month. And most of the money in that charge goes straight to the scammer. So if you – and you can't tell if the number is a toll number until you get your bill. I mean, that's the problem. Now, the FCC has issued an advisory. It says consumers should not call back unknown late-night callers <laughs> using the 222 West African Country Code. Boy, this sort of seems kind <laughs> of uh, – would you do that? No. So here's the thing. Uh, what I on my cell phone, if I don't recognize the number, I wait for a message. 
Oh yeah, if I don't, I don't, I don't answer any calls yeah. from numbers I do not recognize. That's right. Ever. So this is this is uh, th- this is coming back. This is this you know this scam comes back about every few years and it's back again in spades. We got an email from Jim in North Carolina. Dear Doc and Jim, I heard about these devices that can re- report about car problems in your car. They notify the dealer or they notify the owner when something's wrong. How do these devices work and are they worth it? Mm. Jim in North Carolina. Well. If you purchased a car after 1996, chances are it has an OBD2 on it. That's onboard diagnostics port number two. OBD, onboard diagnostics. Every truck or car on the road manufactured after 1996 in the U.S. is legally mandated to have an OBD2 port. Now, OBD2 is an onboard computer that monitors emissions, mileage, speed, and other data about the car. It's also connected to your check engine light, it's, um, which illuminates when the computer detects something. The OBT2 onboard computer features a 16-pin port, which is located on the driver's side dash, normally under the, you know, under the steering wheel somewhere. It allows a mechanic or anywhere else to read real-time error codes using a special scan tool. You simply plug the scan tool into the port, and you can read the codes. Now, you can also get a Bluetooth dongle. You can plug it into the port of Bluetooth dongle, and you can connect to your to your uh, smartphone um, or to a laptop with Bluetooth without even a wire, and you can read all the error codes directly. So there are a lot of devices, a lot of scanning devices that actually have this wireless capacity. They sell you the Bluetooth dongle that plugs into the port. It scans it. There's an app for your iPhone that you can, that you can get. Some of them actually... You download the app, and, that, and if there's a certain kind of error signal, it, it sends out a text message uh, that there's something uh, something wrong. And now these scanners are, you know, again, in front of 50 bucks. Now, make certain that the scanner supports your car's manufacturer. So even though the OBD2 OBD port was standardized in terms of its geometry, the government didn't force all the manufacturers to use the pins, the 16 pins in that plug in the same way. Uh-huh. So some of them use pulse width modulation. Some use, uh, you know, frequency modulation. So they have different ways to communicate the data. So what you want to do, you you want to make certain it supports your 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 car's manufacturer. Now, I would just get a uh, an OBT2 port that supports all protocols. There are about six protocols that cover all the manufacturers, and then you can handle it with anybody. But there are a lot of devices that use that port, and if you really are a techie and want to track it, you could have real-time data about your engine, the O2 sensor, everything about your engine as you're driving. Uh, so this is called an OBD2. Um, what's the what's the interface called? A dongle? Well, no, a dongle is just you. It's a wireless. Right. You just yeah. plug it in, and it's, and it's got a Bluetooth. But I'm going to try to find one of these on on Amazon and see how much yeah. they cost. Yeah, it's less than fifty bucks. And so, and then what you do is then then you that 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 Bluetooth connects to your smartphone, and then you download the app that goes with the scanner. So the scanner is built into the dongle. And so you just you just, you just put in OBD2 scanner. Yeah, that's what. And that's... you'll see them all. And you scanner wireless, and you'll get them all. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, and there, and there, and there's one on here for thirty-four dollars. Yeah, there. You can buy, you can get them. You know, uh, you, I mean, you can you can spend a lot of money if you want, but mm-hmm. you can also reset the the error lights if you want with these things. We got an email from Bob in Fayetteville. Dear Tech Talk, I get a lot of spam emails and like to get rid of them. They all have this unsubscribe button at the bottom. Is it worth it? 
if I, you know, if I unsubscribe to them all, then maybe I'll get no more spam. What do you think? Bob in Fayetteville. Well, whatever you do, Bob, don't click on that unsubscribe link. If you yeah. click, if you click unsubscribe in a fraudulent email, it will not result in your email address being removed from the scammers list. What it will do are it's two things. It will verify to the scammer that your email is that your address is actually real and valid, and they'll send more emails to you. Or you might click on it, and it will take you to a malicious website where you download malware onto your computer, and then then you're infected with something else. So. The best way to handle the spam is to simply go there and and uh, do uh, on your email itself. There's a drop-down menu and uh, in your uh, email client and and declare it as either spam or junk mail. It'll move it to the spam filter or the junk or the junk mail filter uh, folder, where whichever one, whichever name your email client uses. And that also notifies your spam filter that you're declaring this to be spam. And so over time, your spam filter will learn that you want this that this is spam and it. And it won't send it down to you. Now, if you if you did accidentally click on any any kind of link in that spam message, uh, uh, I would uh, I would get rid of the email by declaring it as spam, and then I'd immediately do a virus scan on your computer just to make certain you didn't pick up any malware. We got an email from Dennis in Texas. Dear Tech Talk, I get calls from salespeople all the time. I try to block the number, but they keep changing the caller ID. Is it legal? To have a fake caller ID, is there some, there's something fishy about those numbers. They're actually calling from a long distance away, but they look like local numbers. Uh, love this. Is there anything I can do about this? Love the show, Dennis in Texas. Well, calling or texting somebody, having another person's phone number show up in the recipient's caller ID is called spoofing. And it happens all the time. You can go to, there's a company called Spoof Card. You can, you can, you can go to spoofcard.com. You can download an app for your iPhone, your smartphone, your computer, any any kind of smartphone system, and you just tell it the phone number you want and the caller ID, and boom, that's, you'll get it. No issue at all, and they, they charge you a small uh, fee per minute for the phone calls, but spoof card is used by a lot of people. Now, they the FCC has... So the question is, is it illegal to spoof the phone number? That's the thing. So okay. let's let's go to the FCC rules. Let's do that. I want to, you know, now. I mean, I'm glad you brought the the rule book in. I got the rule book it's here. Big. Rarely, rarely do people actually sit up Saturday morning and read the FCC rules. Well, you do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. You know, I really go above and beyond the call of duty for our tech talk audience. Now, the FCC rules prohibit anyone, I'm quoting, anyone from transmitting misleading Inaccurate caller ID data with the intent to defraud or cause harm or wrongly obtain anything of value. Anyone who's illegally spoofing can face up to a $10,000 penalty, but they have to have an intent to defraud. However, they go, the FCC goes on to say spoofing is not always illegal. There are legitimate uses for spoofing, like when a doctor calls a patient from his or her personal cell phone number, they might want to display the office number rather than their personal cell phone yeah, number. Sure, that, that would makes be sense. that would be legitimate. And so it's not illegal to spoof a phone number, but you have to prove that it was had fraudulent intent. And and maybe these uh robocall people they they say, well it's not fraudulent. I'm just giving I'm just giving an opportunity for this person to buy a fantastic deal. And so in that case, sure. it's probably not illegal. Mm-hmm. Now uh, now, telemarketers, they, they go on to say that telemarketers are not allowed to spoof their phone numbers in any case, and there are no gray areas, but they still do. There's really no enforcement of this. So 
Um, it looks like you are going to have to continue to, 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 to suffer with this, Dennis. I, I have the same thing. I just, you know, I, you, just, you, you just can't block every new number that comes in. We got an email from Don in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, my neighbor wants to use my Wi-Fi. He's a nice guy. Got a lot of people who want to do this. He's a nice guy. Should I do it or not? Don in Baltimore. Well, Don, you need to know him well because there's a risk. For instance, there was a man in Camden, New Jersey, that piggybacked on his neighbor's unprotected open Wi-Fi network and used it to download thousands of images and videos depicting child pornography. Oops. Of course, when the cops came looking for the culprit, they didn't knock on the perpetrator's door. Instead, they followed the digital footprint, which was your IP address at your at, at, at the neighbor's house, and they went in there looking for that child porn. Now, the couple that was there, they were innocent, and the, the police came in, actually, and looked at every single computer in the house, could not find any examples of child porn. So then they thought, okay, somebody must be connected to the network. And they eventually did get the guy. But that was a little bit of a problem. And sure. so they uh, they didn't go to jail, but it was just really annoying. Also, if you let somebody on your Wi-Fi network and you're like sharing, uh, hard, you know, you share hard drives between computers, you can easily transfer files and you don't have password protection, they can see all that sharing. So you got to be mindful that somebody's on your network. All your computers are exposed, so you better sure. make certain that they're all connected. Make certain you're not sharing anything because you don't want them snooping around your computer. It's like if somebody borrows your car and gets into an accident. That's it's right. your insurance. That's right. So I'd think about it carefully. Mm -hmm. It's probably not worth it. We got an email no. from Russell in Fairfax. I'm an amateur photographer. And I'm hoping to go pro before long. I regularly upload my photos, my best photos, to Facebook, my Facebook uh, case, my, my Facebook profile to get feedback from friends and other photographers. Someone told me that once I uploaded the photo to Facebook, they automatically become – Facebook automatically becomes a copyright holder of the photo, and they can do anything they want with it. Is that true? I'm worried. Russell in Fairfax. Well, when you take a picture, Russell, you automatically become the copyright holder of that photo. And according to this page on the U.S. Copyrights Office website, you own the copyright on that photo until the, you pass away. And simply, in and simply uploading your photo to Facebook does not affect the copyright in any way. However, let's read the small print on the Facebook <laughs> Terms of Service. Now, that's another thing most people don't do on a Saturday morning, read the read, Terms of Service. But you of, do that because you're a full-service kind of that's guy. That's right. Now, this is what it says on the Facebook Terms of Service. You own the content you create and share on Facebook and other Facebook products you use. And nothing in these terms takes away the rights you have for your own content. You are free to share your content with anyone else whenever you want. So they're saying you don't lose your copyright. However, when you go to another place on the uh, Facebook Terms of Service, it turns out that you are giving Facebook the right to use your photo in any way they want as long as they don't violate your privacy settings. So if you've uploaded a photo and you and your, say, profile is uh, public, mm -hmm. they can take that photo and they can take it anywhere and use it in ads, anything they want. Really? Now, that, now, you own the copyright, but they can do anything they want with it. And if it's public, it may turn out that they might end up letting somebody, a third party, use it and your photo just gets being used all over the place. So uh, you still own the copyright, but you've lost sort of control of the digital content. Mm -hmm. So, But if your profile is private, they can only share it among your friends. 
So there you go. Those are the nuances in the terms of service of the Facebook copyright. Thank you, Mr. Fine Print. We have an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear Dr. Shirts and Jim, I have a problem. I dropped my landline phone and went to AT&T's voice over IP and router. Now I can't use my Zoom fax dongle on my computer or send faxes through my router. After contacting Zoom about the problem, they stated that the Zoom was analog and not digital. Furthermore, they stated they do not manufacture any digital faxes. But having a fax machine is handy. What actually are my options now? Is there some way that I can fax from my computer? Uh, Really enjoy the podcast down here in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, Doug, uh, the fax protocol is really meant to be transmitted over phone lines. So that dongle that you had, it plugged into the USB port of your computer, and then I'm, then the other end of the dongle plugged into your, to your landline. And so it was basically just, and then you, you were using the fax, uh, fax software in your computer to basically go to that dongle and then send a fax out over the phone line. Once the phone line's gone, you really can't send a traditional fax. Now, what I do and what I have been doing for a long time, because um, because I went to voice over IP phones, I, I I will just scan my document with with my uh, I've got a printer scanner. It it could also be a fax, but I don't I don't have a landline, so I can't use it as a fax. So I just print and scan it, and I have it send the convert my scan document to a PDF file and send it to my computer. And then I simply send an email to the person I want to reach, and I, uh, I attach the PDF file. Then that way I don't have to send a fax, and they just get an email. It's easier for them. They can just print it out quite easily if they have to sign the document and send it back. But some people still want to use faxes. So your only option, if you really do want a fax, is to use an online fax service. And these online fax services, they've got their own phone lines that they're attached to, and you upload the document there, and they'll, and they'll send the fax for you. Now, the good news is some of them are free, and, uh, you know, if you're, not, if you're not a big faxer, these will be all right. Now, you've got here faxzero.com, faxzero.com. I'll just give you a couple. All you have to do, look, you can Google free online fax services, and you'll get a lot of them. I just I picked a couple that look pretty good. FactZero.com. You can send a fax anywhere for free in the U.S. or Canada. You just simply you just simply go to FactZero.com and then you upload your document or PDF file, and then you enter the text that you want to fax. You know, on the cover sheet, and uh, this is a free service. It places an ad on the cover sheet, and it's limited to only three pages per fax, and you can do up to five free faxes per day. Now, if you need more than three pages. You can fax up to 25 pages with priority delivery and no ad on the cover page for $1.99. Now, the second one that looks pretty good to me is gotfreefax.com. Gotfreefax.com. If you'd rather, if you don't want to have an ad on the front page, this gotfreefax.com, it has no ads on the front page. And it doesn't carry any ads on your fax. Now, you can send faxes online to anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. You can send up to three pages per fax. And you're allowed two free faxes per day. Now, if you need more than three pages, gotfreefax.com allows you to fax up to 10 pages for 98 cents, 20 pages for $1.98, or 30 pages for $2.98. So I think those services are going to do you just fine. But I still would probably just 
take and attach my PDF file to an email. So well, let me ask you a question. I mean, that seems to be Doug's issue is confidentiality. He wants to fax something to somebody as opposed to sending the PDF file because he thinks the email isn't secure. Right. I mean, the facts, the hard copy can wind up in the wrong hands, too. Yeah, because you don't know who's at the other end picking up the piece of paper. Exactly. So, you, 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 I mean, if you were really worried about confidentiality, you could encrypt your, you can encrypt the um, the PDF file. <laughs> and then it would take a password to de-encrypt it. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could do that. You can do that through Adobe, right? Yeah. You, yeah, you can, you can, you can do that. There, there are a number of systems systems to do that and then they need a password well, to read it so if somebody if somebody goes into your your uh, so i guess this really doesn't go through your email these these websites but if somebody <laughs> could could somebody hack into your computer and get this even if you send it through free fax well i i I, I don't know hard I, to do it would it would be pretty hard to do because i mean essentially you're uploading the file to this website Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess then it's vulnerable in, well, case, winds, some, in, case, somebody, wind, in case somebody is on that website. It could wind up. It's going to wind up on a server, regardless. It it goes on a server, and then the server basically they have basically something similar to what Doug has a dongle that that just connects to a phone line, and they just sh- ship out the facts. And um, and they and but it's going to be on the server, and uh, you know. So I guess you want to know: Do they delete the, the Do they delete the files on That's the server question. and all that? But yeah. But but there are also some people, you know, I've had real estate people and they only want faxes. I mean, they're just like in the in, yeah. in the last century and I, they only want to receive a I fax. Wonder, why is that? I don't know. It just the it people, doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense, but you know, that's they're, they're, that's what they know and love. And so if you got somebody that just has to receive a fax, um you can use the service. Also, some of these services will give you a phone number and you can get an incoming fax. So it looks like you have a fax machine. And basically, it goes into that incoming number, receives the fax, converts it to a PDF, and sends you an email. Hmm. So, so you can actually – it looks like you have a fax number at home, but it's actually online. So they, they, they do have these services, and I hope one of those works for you, Doug. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Schertz. Uh, Susan listens to our show. She said, on April 27th, Lynn from Fairfax asked for advice about replacing an old Windows 7 computer. And you said, but you you were saying, well, why don't you just stop using your computer and use a mobile device instead? Uh, you know, because if if she's doing all of her internet surfing on on the well, on her phone anyway, maybe she doesn't even need the computer. Then you had an email from Michael from Boston that said somebody hijacked his router, and your advice to him was to connect his route, connect the router from his computer directly to the Ethernet cable, and or else set up a, a stronger Wi-Fi system. So. I was wondering if I could attach my smartphone or my tablet directly to my router with an Ethernet cable. So instead of using the Wi-Fi connection on my phone, I just plug my phone into the router with an Ethernet cable. Well, uh, I don't not not too many people do that because it's not so convenient, but it is possible to do it. See, what you need is you need a Lightning to USB adapter. The lightning plug is, a, is, the, is, is the plug at the bottom of your iPhone. It's called a lightning plug. So you have to go lightning to USB adapter. Then you need a USB to Ethernet adapter. And you've got to have a powered USB hub. And then you finally need the Ethernet cable to plug into your router. So what you do is you disable the Wi-Fi on your iPad or on your iPhone because you don't want to go over the Internet through Wi-Fi. Then you plug the Ethernet cable into one free port on your router. And then you plug the other end into the USB to Ethernet adapter. 
Then what you do, you connect the USB Ethernet, the Ethernet adapter to the USB hub, a powered USB hub. Now, the reason you've got to have a powered USB hub is that USB to Ethernet adapter takes a fair amount of power, and it can't get enough power from the computer connection. So it needs its, its own power. So you use a powered USB hub, plug that into it, and then you take your your final connection, the lightning to USB adapter, and just plug that into the to the hub, and then you've got everything set up. It'll take a while for your iPad or your iPhone to recognize everything, but then you can surf the web with that Ethernet connection. I don't I don't really recommend that, I, but it's kind of an experiment, and it is possible. I looked around, and some mm-hmm. some people have done it, and um, I really don't know why. Uh, we got an email from Carl in Texas. Dear Doc and Jim, I own a small business with just a few employees. We share a common set of files. Now, I've got them stored in a shared folder on my desktop PC, which means I have to leave my computer up all the time so they have access to the files. I don't like that. I'd love to have a different setup so I could turn off my computer, but I don't want to buy a file server and have to maintain it just for a few shared documents. What are my options? Well, um, Carl, I think a single NAS hard drive would be perfect for your situation. NAS, N-A-S. It stands for Network Attached Storage. And it would allow everyone to access files on the NAS hard drive anytime, and it wouldn't, and it wouldn't depend on your computer. Now, now basically, NAS hard drives are, are like mini servers, they resi- but they look, like a, uh, they look like an external hard drive. You plug them in, and they... They get to work. I mean, many of the NAS hard drives actually will connect to uh, to your Wi-Fi network directly. They've got Wi-Fi connection. You can just they'll just you just link them to Wi-Fi, or you or you might plug it into the back of your router if you want to have an Ethernet connection to your to your NAS. Now, a NAS device has several advantages over a file server. They don't require, don't require a keyboard, a mouse, a monitor. They can be administered remotely from any of the PCs on the network or from your mobile device. And they typically come with pre-installed software for backing up all the computers on your network, which is pretty nice. You could actually then, the three computers there could all back up to the NAS drive automatically. So you can buy NAS devices that hold multiple hard drives. Um, Now, given the size of your office, I'd recommend that you get a device with two 8-terabyte hard drives. Uh, Now, the reason you want two hard drives is that you configure the NAS server so that it's in mirror mode, so that both hard drives, you write files to both hard drives at the same time. They mirror each other. Now, the reason you do that is if one hard drive fails, you've still got the data on the other one, and you can simply replace it. So you have an automatic real-time backup in the second hard drive at all times, which I think is very important for Office files. Now, what I would also do is that because if you if these are really valuable files, I would also back up the NAS server to the cloud using something like Carbonite. So if, in case somebody steals the external hard, your NAS, your, you know, your network, you know, your network device, um, you still have all your files backed up to the cloud. And I think that'll work for you pretty well. Now, if you look at, you know, I, I just went on to the, to Amazon. You could, you could get, for instance, there's a Synology two bay NAS disk station. It's around 298 on Amazon. And then you could get a couple, of, a couple of four terabyte hard drives for the Western Digital NAS hard drives are 
they would be about one hundred nineteen dollars each. So you're looking at three hundred, you know, two to three hundred dollars for the NAS uh, drive system, and then about a hundred dollars each for the hard drive. So you'd be up to around five hundred dollars. You'd have everything that you would need, and that's uh, would be a very good solution for your office. We got an email from Alice in D.C. Dear Doc and Jim, I've heard that anyone can clone your Facebook account and impersonate you. How can I prevent that from happening? Alice in D.C., well, account cloning is a problem, and scammers are doing it more and more and more. So what they what they basically do, they create another account, which, which has a name very similar to yours, but not exactly. And then they populate it with photos and personal information from your real account. And then what they do, because they can see all your friends, they then actually make friend requests to all the friends in your list of friends. And it looks like it's you with the new account. And so a lot of your friends are just going to um, accept that friend request, and boom, now they got a fake account connected to your friends. Now, scammers that clone accounts, because they're, they're, they're basically trying to, um, you know, do some sort of um, fraudulent activity with your friends— So the people that clone the accounts really only want to clone accounts that have a lot of friends and have a a big friends list because that gives them a lot of uh, victims. So the best way to keep people from cloning your account is to hide your friends list so people can't see it. Because if your friends list is hidden, your account isn't worth much to a to an account cloner. Interesting. So what you want to do is you just you just go to the. It's very easy to do. You can, you can just click on the upper right hand corner and go to your timeline. Then you click on your friends link. There's a little pencil shaped icon, right beside the find friends button. Click on that and then you click edit privacy, and you go down to a line that says see who your see who your see who can see your friends list and you've got different choices there and you just select only me. And then click done. And once you've done that, you're the only one who can see your friends list and no one else can see it. I think if you do that, nobody is going to steal or nobody's going to clone your account because it won't be of any value to them. We got an email from Don in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, my Windows computer is running very, very slow these days. (laughs) (laughs) It's annoying. How can I speed it up? Well, there are several things you can try, Don. Uh, First of all, First thing I would do is check for malware. You want to scan for malware because that will really slow down because it does a lot of stuff in the background. And remove any viruses or adware. Then you want to remove any programs or apps that you don't use. It could be that you run out of hard drive space. Um, And just get rid of any programs or apps that you don't use on your computer. There's probably a lot of them that were loaded on there. Then you want to look at the programs that auto-load. Right when when you turn on your PC... A lot of times you'll install programs and they, they and they'll just and they'll just automatically add themselves to auto load and and you may not want to have all these programs loaded and eating up all your RAM. Now also you want to be sure your PC is not overheating because <clears throat> what happens is on a, the PCs if if the CPU detects that it's getting too hot, frequently the computer is programmed to simply slow the clock speed down in order to bring the temperature down. So just make certain that's not happening. And the last thing you may want to look at is how much RAM you have. If you've got less than 4 gigabytes of RAM, I think if you double it to 8 gigabytes, you'll see a real speed improvement. 
Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Strat- Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. You like that, huh? I like that. Are you impressed? You should see over here, it looks like... I am this very is impressed. Keyboard and this rainbow full of colors that and stuff. That is fantastic. Today we're going to feature Kevin Systrom. Kevin Systrom is co-founder of Instagram and uh, was CEO until uh, 2018. That's, of course, Instagram is the photo sharing application that was purchased by Facebook in 2012 for $1 billion. Kevin Systrom was born 1984 in Holliston, um, um you know, Holliston, Massachusetts. It's about a town about 20 miles west of Boston. He got his first computer at age 12. But his interest in computers really triggered by the game Doom, too. <laughs> I'm telling you, that is a morbid game. That is a first. I've never played any of that these is, things. Uh, well, I, I, I. You just, you know. I know. You I, know, because you're Mr. Technology. Well, I, I was interested in the graphics, you know, not the violence. <laughs> Really? Yes, and so. And I'm in a room alone with you. I know it was. Uh, it, it was interesting because Doom, you you would actually you could you actually felt you were walking around, and and you and you actually had three dimensional renditions. And this was the first game that actually had had realistic uh, with perspective three dimensional play. And it was I mean it was really amazing technology given the fact that in those days the uh, the computers weren't that powerful. It was really really efficiently written code so but um, you know but i i would never let my kids play doom because it's it's the kind of thing you don't want to play i yeah. think but it's a great piece of software so he got his interest in computers and he started going in and and editing it editing the layers uh, of the different uh 
Uh, if it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT. He, there we go. He started trying to go in and, and, and modifying Doom so he could get different levels in it, and he just loved it. His first programming languages were QBasic and Visual Basic. That's that's a really good start for programming languages. He graduated from Middlesex uh, School, a private school in Concord, Massachusetts, in 2002. Now, he was accepted into Stanford, and he initially focused on computer programming, but then he got more into you know technology management, entrepreneurship. You know, he he wasn't really a hardcore programmer, but he did he did like to he did like to program. His parents had taken him out, uh, you know, on a vacation to California. You know, before he graduated from high school, he said, "I love it out here." I think he went to the beaches. He says, "I'm going to school in California." So, so he did. He made it to Stanford. And when he was in when he was in his junior year, he was chosen. He was one of twelve students chosen for the Mayfield Fellows Program for Entrepreneurs. This is a uh, this is where they, they take the key people who they think have the ability to start one of these companies, and, and they give them the skill set to do that. So as a result of his participation in the Mayfield, Mayfield Fellows Program, he got an internship at Odeo. Odeo was a, was a company that actually pivoted, and they spawned Twitter. So he was working with, you know, the guys who created Twitter. In 2005, when he was... Uh, Still a junior, and this I guess he'd just gotten out of the Mayfield Fellows Program. He was offered a job at Facebook, but he turned it down so he could finish school. He graduated a year later in 2006 with the Bachelor of Science in Management Science and Engineering. See, he, got, he sort of got out of programming, Management Science and Engineering. He spent two years at Google. He started working on Gmail, Docs, Google Reader, and other products, but then they moved him into development, you know, evaluating other companies. They moved him to sort of a non-development role, kind of a management role. He didn't like that. So after two years, he quit Google, and he joined a company called Next Stop. Now, this was this is a company started by some ex-Googlers, and it was a location recommendation startup where you, you know, you're at a restaurant, and you say, well, what are we going to do now? So you go, you go to the app, next stop, and it randomly picks something, and that's your next stop. <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. And so uh, it was acquired by by Facebook in 2010. Now, in, uh, in 2009, he decided to launch his own company, and it, it was actually a competitor to Foursquare, one, Foursquare, you know, where you do a check-in. You know, you arrive at a business and you check-in. Have you check ever in. done that? I, I I downloaded it once just to see what it was like, and then I deleted it. Here's my thought: nobody cares where I am. <laughs> so. Nobody nobody cares. But what well, what what some businesses do? They mm-hmm. if you check in with Foursquare, you get a discount. Oh, that's see. This is how in the dark I am. That's that that that's the play because the more check ins they get, it looks like there's a lot of activity ah. there. So. So, so you can you can get discounts if you do a check in with Foursquare. I, I mean, I tried it; it's not my thing, so I deleted yeah. it. Uh, it but, looks it just looks so so self involved when it pops up on social media. Yeah. Now, what he did, he he well, and and so he, um, but he wanted to do something that was more than just check in software, because Foursquare had really taken over the the market. So he says, look, why don't we do check in software and you can post a picture. So he said it's going to hmm. be it's going to be a hybrid. You know, you check in and you post a picture, 
And you could post a picture of you eating an ice cream cone. Or you could post a picture of you, your friends at the table. You could, you could post any picture you want when, as the time you check in. That was the idea. So he managed to raise half a million dollars in startup funds to launch this idea. This was back when VC money was plentiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he got one of his good friends, Mike Krieger. He was a fellow Stanford grad. But Mike Krieger was a hardcore programmer. Okay, and he said, "I need a hardcore programmer if we're going to develop something." So they built uh, Bourbon B U R B N. That's the um, that's the uh, check-in software with picture posting, and they built an HTML5, and they set it up to do all kinds of things. You could check into locations, you could make plans, and you'd have future check-ins. So you could you you you, you could check in in advance. You could earn points points for hanging out with friends. You could post pictures. It had all kinds of features. And then uh, it really wasn't that popular. And then he remembered his uh, Mayfield Fellows Program. And they said at that Mayfield Fellows Program for entrepreneurs, don't make it too complicated. Yeah. Users don't want a 1,000 yep. features. Yep. They want something that's simple to use. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, let's make it simple. So they decided just to focus on the photo sharing part of it and got, get rid of everything else. And they and there was no there was no application that was just photo sharing. So they started working on that thing and all, and of course that is ultimately what Instagram became, you know, photo sharing. So while he was on vacation with his girlfriend in Mexico, he decided to add some filters to make photos look better. His girlfriend wanted to take these Awesome photos where she really looked fantastic <laughs> on the beach, and he had a he had an iPhone four back then. It was, it was the best iPhone, but that's what they had back then. And she said, "You know, these pictures just don't really look good enough. I want the book fantastic." So he started working on filters where you could add these filters and you could take an average look. So now she's got mouse ears and whiskers. Yeah, and that's, and, that's fantastic, and, right? No, it, it it's a real. They, they have all kinds of. Well, they, they probably do have that filter, but I don't. Oh, they do have that filter. Trust yeah, me, everybody. But, but they have the that. they have the you know the enhanced beauty filter too, <laughs> and so, of course, that would be the one that he would do for his girlfriend. So then he, um, so then he created this filter and then he built the filter into. The photo sharing device, which they called Instagram, because you you basically share a device. It's like an instant telegram. So Instagram, and so they, so this photo sharing device, you photo shares, and it makes the photos beautiful, and then you can share them and upload quickly. So the trick is, and why it look why it feels like it's so fast is you take a picture, and then while you're picking the filter, the photo uploads. So when you pick the filter. It, it applies it to it very quickly, and then and you feel like it's almost uploaded instantly. So this was the basic idea. They simplified it, photo sharing with filters. And they, you know, they spent, uh, they didn't really spend that long developing this stuff. Uh, the, you know, they spent probably a few months developing it. And his initial marketing just sent out to email to all of his tech contacts in California. He'd been at Google and had been around, so he had probably a lot of friends out there. And so they, they, they sent them an email contact to let them join, and his friends loved it. Huh. Now, now one of the people who saw it, because he worked at, was Jack Dorsey, who was the founder of Twitter. And, of course, Jack Dorsey was at Odeo when he was there. Jack Dorsey got this Instagram, and he tweeted a, 
a bit. And he said, man, this is the best app anywhere. And as soon as Jack Dorsey tweeted that this was a great app, because Jack Dorsey had a lot of followers, it just took off. Instagram, it took them eight weeks to build the Instagram programs. They started in 2009. And they had 25,000 users in 24 hours. They had 200,000 users in the first week, and they had a million users in less than three months. That's a pretty good build. Yep. In February of 2011, uh, Instagram had 1.75 million users posting, and they, they were posting 290,000 photos a day. Okay, <clears throat> they had to raise some money because if you're going to – post 290,000 photos a day, you're going to need some web space. You're going to have to have some bandwidth. So they raised $7 million from Benchmark in 2011. Now, at this point, you know, because he had uh, – um, um, Kevin had 40% of the company. I guess his co-founder had 40%. Maybe the investors had 20%. I don't know how they divide up. But, but Kevin had 40%. So in 2012, Instagram was purchased by – Facebook. Remember, it started in 2010, and in 2012, Instagram had 13 employees, and they sold it to Facebook for $1 billion in two years. And uh, Kevin Systrom's take on that was $400,000. Not too bad for no. a couple years' work, mm -hmm. you know. Now he stayed. Now the, the the sales pitch that Zuckerberg made for him was that he said, "Look, I'm going to keep Instagram as a separate company. You're going to be CEO. I'm not going to I'm not going to just mix it in with Facebook because that would ruin it." So Kevin stayed on as CEO of Instagram, which was a you know a subsidiary of Facebook, but not actually integrated into Facebook. He stayed on until 2018, and by September of 2017. They were having. They had 800 million monthly users. Mm. 800 million. Uh, he resigned uh, last year, September 24th, and 2018, as CEO, and, and moved on. But there you go, Kevin Systrom. He actually stumbled into. You see how he kind of stumbled into a, a product that sold, and then he cashed out and made it. Well, made it uh, made a lot of money. He could have. He possibly could have made more money if it had held out. But I think that Facebook would have created a competitor, and he may have lost out. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the big trade. There yeah. you go. Everything you want to know about Kevin Systrom, the co-founder of Instagram. Hope you're paying attention because the information just imparted by Dr. Schertz can be turned into a free lunch. Stand by for the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thank you all so kindly, and thank you for spending part of your Saturday with us here at Tech Talk Radio, where we just finished talking about Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram in Profiles in IT. Instagram was recently purchased by a social media giant, which ironically offered Systrom a job years ago, a job that he turned down. Today's question, simply name that company. Well, Jim, it's the middle of summer. Thanks for keeping it easy. If you'd like to play our little game, well, now is your time to pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If we're interrupting you while you're posting to Instagram in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line, which sometimes works. 8779-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Let's talk about this WhatsApp security flaw. This allows hackers to install malware in your phone. Mm-hmm. It was a newly discovered security flaw that enabled hackers to install a very dangerous piece of malware no- known as Pegasus onto your phone simply by dialing your number. What's more... The Pegasus malware will be installed on your phone even if you decline to answer the call. Hmm. Once Pegasus is installed by the hacker, he will have complete access to every scrap of personal and financial data that's stored on your phone, including all your financial data and your bank account data. Luckily, WhatsApp has released an update to fix this flaw. Now, this is what the WhatsApp uh, website said. It said, WhatsApp encourages people to upgrade to the latest version of the app, as well as keep their mobile operating system up to date to protect against potential targeted exploits designed to compromise information stored on your device. 
They didn't really admit that this was that bad, but they say you want to upgrade right away. So if you've got WhatsApp installed on your smartphone, you need to update it with the latest patch immediately. You also need to ensure that anything else on your phone is up to date. Now, if you've got financial information stored on your phone, uh, you want to just keep a close eye on those accounts to make certain that somebody didn't get a copy of that stuff. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. With, these, uh, with these app updates, if you already have programmed into your phone, if you select you know, automatically install updates – Will that have happened? It would have happened. Okay, yeah. so you're okay if you've done that, but if you don't automatically do the updates, then you've got to right. go back and That's do it. That's right. And I would actually just, I'd just go there and just make certain that I've, it is updated, because sometimes it, it won't update unless you're on Wi-Fi. So um, you know, because people don't like to use all their cellular data to update. So you, you might be set up to update only on Wi-Fi. Mm. And so, and so, if you, if you weren't around Wi-Fi, maybe it wouldn't wouldn't have like if you're Ew. traveling, you wouldn't yeah, have updated. Sure, so, good point. So it's a good idea every so often to go check the, the your uh, your uh, app thing and to just, see which which ones have not been updated. And I just I just I, I log into it and just update all. Yeah, and I'll just see all the ones that are ready, and I just update all when I'm on Wi-Fi. Facial recognition is coming to New York schools. Lockport City School District will be the first U.S. public school system to test facial recognition on students and staff. Now, the district began the initial implementation phase of the Aegis software suite. Now, the Aegis applications includes a facial recognition tool called Sentry that alerts school officials if anyone from the local sex offenders registry or anybody banned from the school enters the school. It could be somebody banned like a suspended student, a fired employee, or a known gang member. Now, the company also offers Protector, which is a shape recognition tool that recognizes the top 10 guns used in school shootings, and Mercury, a forensic search engine that can review any unattended video. Now, the district has already increased security majors in the past, like they have Raptor ID, which reviews all government-issued IDs presented by building visitors and alerts them if they're on the sex offender database. The Aegis system will not compile information or track any information or movements of anyone who is a staff member, a visitor, or a student. It basically is limited to only identifying individuals whose photograph has been entered into the system database on the, on the district property. Now, the people in the database are those who aren't allowed on the property. So if one's identified, if somebody's identified from the list, uh, Aegis Software will notify the staff. If in case the recog- the image recognition software identifies a gun, it will alert the police immediately. Hmm. There you go. That's actually that's I think that's cool. a pretty good. I think that is a pretty good system. Really, mm-hmm. I, that's mm-hmm. a good idea. This DNA gel thing. I'm I'm curious. Yeah. This is interesting. Go ahead. This is the idea of the week. The Protect DNA gel. It's a new technology to help investigators return stolen properties. It's not real DNA. They just have that in the name, by the way. Thousands of Central Floridians are using this nearly invisible gel that links back to their owners. Now the gel is free for anyone who enrolls on the Protect website. Then Protect mails owners the gel in a package a few days after the consumers sign up, and the that gel is earmarked to them. Then they spread this gel, which is nearly invisible, using a, something that looks like a wand. It looks kind of like a Q-tip, <laughs> and they just they just put it on different they swab. different. They swab it on there, and then law enforcement agencies use a microscope that clips onto smartphones, and this gives the phone this gives the cameras the ability to zoom in close enough. To read the identification numbers on tiny little dots that are in the gel. No kidding. Can you, so there are tiny little dots in the. So it's not really DNA. I wonder if it does it wash off over time. I don't. I don't know. 
It, like, it, could I put it on my bike? Yeah, you could put it on your bike. You put it on your TV. I, 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 I don't think it washes off. I don't. Put it on your children. And it says you. I don't know if that would work. You, you, now you don't <laughs> have to buy very much. There, there are thousands of micro dots. Investigators then track stolen property. Now, Kissimmee police say that there are more thirty. That more than thirty six hundred people are using the gel in their area. Mm. Police departments are now urging others to enroll and protect their property. So if you want to get your own Protect DNA gel, it's free. Simply go to protectdna.com, and you can order it, and they'll be sent to you. And they're trying to get more and more police departments to use it, and and, and because then it'll become quite effective if it's used widely. We, uh, I'm going directly to their website now. I bet, I bet we can't use this in Baltimore. <laughs> you, you, may, you might be able to. But, 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 I, I wouldn't I would but, No, but you would have to train the police on how to use it, and they would have to have functional computers. There's that. Get your free <laughs> DNA property kit now, a $40 value. So it's it's affordable. It's for, and it's free now because they're, they're they're trying to they're trying to have this thing spread virally. Right. I thought that was just a great idea. Cool. What a great idea! The new kilogram standards, La Grande K is <laughs> gone. On March twentieth, the scientific community will officially change the definition definition of the kilogram. For one hundred and thirty years, the kilo has been defined by a physical cylinder of platinum iridium alloy known as La Grande K, which is stored in a vault in Paris. But every time the scientists handled it, the cylinder lost atoms. It estimated it lost 50 micrograms over its lifetime. So beginning on Monday, the kilogram will officially be measured by a physical constant known as Planck's constant. The change has been years in the making. And on May 20th, three other units of measurement, the ampere, the Kelvin, and the mole, will also have new definitions. These proved to be easier to upgrade, the last three, because they weren't based on the Victoria-era lump in France. (laughs) The kilo will now correspond to the mass of an exact number of photons or particles of light of a particular wavelength. With this change, the kilo will be defined in terms of seconds in the meter, which are physical constants and therefore more reliable than man-made objects. Very interesting. I I, uh, I like the Kelvin. You like the I like Kelvin. the Kelvin, yes. Yeah. It's a it's kind of a cool name. The Kelvin is a very cool name, and of course absolute zero is as cold as you can get on the Kelvin scale. Mm-hmm. Absolute zero. So that's really good. So I'll there tell you, you this thing has been this digital this change to the kilogram standard, this is really quite a big shift. Mm-hmm. And they're going more and more to physical constants rather than rather than actual measuring measuring uh objects. So I think that's really a good move. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs there. You know, it could be in uh, hospitality, culinary arts, business, accounting, IT, software engineering, networking, um, any of the healthcare science or nursing. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. That's it for this week. Tune in next week for more Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. And on the web at federalnewsnetwork.com. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. Tech Talk Radio is a presentation of Stratford University and Dr. Richard Church. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. 
For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.